Well, if that song does not get your clock ticking, your clapper is broken, right? No doubt about it. What a song. We got Jesus. How could we ever want more? Amen. Which brings up a question for all of you this morning. How is it that you came to know him? We have had the awesome privilege of looking in last week to the first part of Saul's conversion and looking at verses 1 and 2, we've learned what kind of man he was. Palos, meaning small, probably bald-headed, bow-legged. We know all those physical attributes, but the other part is he was a citizen of Tarsus of Sicily, which means he was distinguished. He was uh, a Roman citizen. We learned that from the text of Acts. He was also a Hebrew and a Pharisee, to top it all off. How is it that Paul, or Saul, Paulos, became Paul, as given the name by Christ? How is it that he came to faith in Christ? How is it that you, if you're saved today, how is it that you became one of his? I want you to know in Paul's case, the divine hunter, Christ, came after him. Paul was not the one seeking the Savior at all, not the one hunting for the Savior, but it was the other way around. The pursuer, the persecutor, becomes the prey in Acts chapter 9. The, you see, really when you see conversion given to us here in the text of Scripture, you're, you're finding out in the text that... It's really how you came to be his. Now, Luke, the historian, is giving you this information for a particular purpose. He spends so much time in giving out uh, so much terminology of Saul's conversion. When you get over to Acts 22 and 26, uh, Paul is going to recount his whole conversion experience again. There's a reason for that. He wants the reader to see how it is that you actually became one of his as well. In conversion, we have what's called pre-conversion and post-conversion. Now, you can give testimony about what you were before you met Christ, right? Now, we did that in preaching about Paul. We talked about that last week, pre-conversion, before you had an encounter with Christ. And then conversion is when you trust Jesus as Lord, and uh, that's a life-altering that's a paradigm shift of the ages. We'll talk about that in a little while. And then you've got this post-conversion. So this week, we're going to look at God saves an enemy. He's confronted by the risen Christ. Which, if you're saved today, you were confronted by the risen Christ or you're not saved. Okay? Next week, we're going to see God saves an enemy. How that Saul is commissioned for a purpose, which so are you. Okay, so that's where we are this morning. Let's read our text. What an awesome passage of Scripture on conversion. And there are applications that you should apply to your life when we're done today. Chapter 9, verse 1. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and he asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women... He might bring them bound to Jerusalem. You know, again, Luke is given to detail. Men and women, meaning that uh, this was uh, ruthless. You know, 
A little bit of uh, congeniality here, a little bit of uh, soft Paul would have said, okay, we're not worried about the women and children. Just snatch the wives straight away, the women away from their homes, leaving only children. And so now as he went on his way, notice this, he's on his way to persecute. He approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. Falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, don't you know there's a little bit of a crackling in his voice? Who are you, Lord? And he said to him, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. Which very well could be your spiritual condition right now. Eyes wide open, but you see nothing. So they led him by the hand, brought him into Damascus. And for, the, for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Again, we can't overestimate. We can't overestimate the importance of Saul's conversion. Other than the cross, the resurrection, and the ascension of Christ, and the outpouring of the Spirit, there is no greater significant text of Scripture found than this one because of the historical ramifications of what God would use Paul to accomplish. This is, again, exactly why Luke is putting so much emphasis upon Saul's conversion. Three different times, again, Paul is going to reiterate in the book of Acts his own personal testimony. Last week we saw the background. This week we're going to dive in to his encounter with the risen Christ. Notice, he's breathing threats. Now, we would think, well, that means breathing out. No, actually in the Greek it means breathing in. He is inhaling. He is like a bull getting ready to attack the uh, clown inside of the bucket, barrel, whatever you call it. Right? And before you can breathe out, you've got to breathe in. You know that bull? In, out. Well, what it's emphasizing, this is the very atmosphere of Saul's life. The very atmosphere is ex, ex, it's inhaling and exhaling threats and murder against the people of God. Paul is not a seeker coming over to FBCO with a gospel track in his hand. He's not on his journey out of Jerusalem headed to Damascus with the letters given by the uh, Caiaphas. He's not doing this thinking about the things of God. He's not doing this contemplating, well, am I saved? Is God really after me? He has no thoughts whatsoever of the Lord. We don't get the picture of someone who is seeking the evidence of Christianity. He's convinced that Christianity, well, it's not been called that at this point. It will be later. But he's convinced that the way was blasphemous. So he gets these letters from Caiaphas. This is the very priest that was involved in uh, the trial and crucifixion of Christ. He's the one that was involved in the trial of the apostles. And I'm sure he was very happy to supply Paul, uh, Saul, with more letters uh, to persecute those of the way. I guess to the Sanhedrin, Paul was a hero. He was going about what they wanted to do, but Paul actually was doing it. He was going, and he was uh, after anyone of the way. Actually, the priests were granted this right by Caesar himself. You know, Rome was in charge, but they would give the Sanhedrin the right to give these letters uh, for particular pertaining to the Jewish nation and their matters of religiosity. Do you know that the Jews also called what they believed the way? 
So when Jesus would say, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and the apostles would begin to teach and preach that, you can see how that was offensive to the Jewish people. They believed they had the way, and all of a sudden, Christ burst on the scene and says, I am the way, emphatically, and there's no way to the Father except through me. And again, Luke gives careful attention to how vicious the nature of his persecuting was when he pulled out men and women. The decency was all out the window, right? He's taking people. Now look, Damascus is 150 miles from Jerusalem. That's how dead set he was on stamping out the way. Now we get to the exciting part of the text, right? Verse 3. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. The suddenness of it reminds us that this was not a gradual thing. He's not riding along on his horse, moving toward a light that's becoming brighter and brighter. That's not the emphasis. The emphasis, he was on his way, but so was the God of heaven on his way. And suddenly, with the immediacy, he sees this incredible light surrounding him. In Acts 22, if you read ahead, Paul describes it as light brighter than the sun. In Acts 22 and 26, he tells us, interesting tidbit of information, that this happened at noon day. So when you put all this together, and you also know that Paul, or Saul at the time, was an expert in the Old Testament, he would have known immediately that what's going on here, the significance of bright light at noonday, he's knocked to the ground. There's the emphasis upon the manifestation of the very presence of God when he's knocked to the ground. Now, there's no evidence that he was on a horse in the text, but I'm pretty sure he was riding a horse. He's going 150 miles away. This is the way they normally traveled in their entourage. You know, there are other men with him. And he's on a mission to violently persecute believers. And the Lord God of eternity knocks him off his horse. Just knocks him off. He's on his back. He's on the ground with blazing light all around him. And then he hears a voice calling his name. The Lord Jesus will call his name in Hebrew. That's not an accident. Oftentimes in the Old Testament when you had repetition of name called out by God, he's trying to get your attention. Moses. Moses, Abraham, Abraham. So this was a biblical truth in the Old Testament that was not lost by Saul. There's no question that Jesus knew Saul before Saul ever knew Jesus. Amen. Just like he knew you by name before you ever knew him. As a matter of fact, the Bible tells us that he knew you in him before the foundation of the world. Amen, so here he is. Uh, and in the present tense, the Lord, or, or in the present tense, Saul says to the Lord, Who are you? Or, or Jesus says to him first, Why are you persecuting me? The Greek really reads, Why me, emphatically, are you persecuting? Jesus reveals emphatic solidarity with his own people, right? Because he doesn't think he's persecuting Jesus, right? But who is Paul persecuting? The saints. Well, if you persecute the saints, you're persecuting Jesus. Right? And so he gives this emphatic solidarity with his own people. He told his disciples in Luke chapter 10, verse 19, If they receive you, 
If they receive you, they will receive me. If they reject you, they are rejecting me. What do you do? What you do to Jesus or Jesus' people is what you do to Christ. And he makes this clear to Saul of Tarsus. When you touch my people, you're touching me. And Saul responds with a question. Who are you, Lord? Now here's somebody who's breathing out threats and murder. And now he's down on the ground. Who are you? You know when he said, who are you, Lord? His voice had to crack a little bit. Quivering, just a little, who are you, Lord? Right? Just a little bit of this, don't you think that's possible? His voice probably squeaked a little bit like yours does when you're nervous. Or some of you guys, your wife's on your head and you're squeaking a little bit. Right? (laughs) Now, scholars will talk about whether Paul meant Lord as Sir or Lord as Yahweh. Well, I think that uh, that's not a really, really important part at this point. He could have meant sir. But I'll tell you this, no matter if he meant Yahweh, Lord of my life, personal Savior, or he meant sir, there was no question that it was a worshipful response. He is down on the ground, and he's probably confused of why he's getting rebuked for anything, because he thought he had it all right. He thought he was doing what the God of Israel would have wanted him to do, and now he's getting rebuked. He cries out in what was a stumbling fashion. Who are you, Lord? Again, he's on a mission, and he thinks he's serving God. He's on a mission. He thinks he's being zealous for the name of God. But in the the light of this, that power knocked him to the ground. And that voice that spoke from heaven was unmistakably the voice of God. He knows this. These next words will never leave the Saul of Tarsus. Or Saul of Tarsus. He's going to talk about it in Galatians. He's going to talk about it in 1 Corinthians. He's going to talk about it in uh, 1 and 2 Timothy. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. I am Jesus. Those three words will never leave his mind. The fact that he persecuted the church, he's going to return to that refrain over and over and over again. It's going to be the catalyst that causes him to say that I am the chief of sinners. Jesus reminds him that he's the very one that he's persecuting. You know full well that uh, immediately Paul is grappling with the issue of resurrection. If it's Jesus speaking to me, we thought he was dead, but now he's talking. He must be alive. Right? So here is Saul, the great persecutor of the church, lying on the ground. He's the very one, the very one he's been persecuting is addressing him. Now, the demands are going to come from Christ at this point, not Paul. He's been the one in charge, right? All of a sudden now, he's going to be told what to do, and he's going to do it. He's not going to have a choice. And the Lord begins to tell him what to do. Jesus did not take time to explain it a little more about what was going on. Instead, he gives these straightforward commands. Get up, go into the city, and you will find out what you are to do. Can you imagine the trauma that entered Paul's life, the encounter that took place here in a flash, everything that he believed, every conviction he held, every feeling he had, every emotion that was driving his life. Uh, he was just driven in this manner in Acts 2, Acts 9, 1 and 2, and all of a sudden, beginning in verse 3, 4, and 5, what a change took place in this man's life. Everything changed. What a paradigm shift. You know what a paradigm is? It's a pattern. 
Everybody has a pattern by which they view life. Paul had his paradigm of how he viewed everything. It's what helps you make sense of what's going on around you in life. And so Saul had a major paradigm shift. And it was fast and it was furious. One moment one way, the next moment another way. They went, they were sent along by Saul, uh, by the Sanhedrin, to arrest the people. Those men were. They, they were going along with Saul to arrest people in Damascus, bring them back. What does the text say about these men? They stood there speechless. Didn't have anything to say. The text said they, says they heard, but they, they couldn't understand what was going on. When God acts, he silences the mouths of all of his enemies. Amen. Acts 22.11 reveals that they heard something, but it was unintelligible to them. There is an objective reality to this particular scene. They all saw the light. What they did understand was the fact that the one who was serving the king, or Caiaphas, and going for these letters, is now under subjection to the true king of kings. They understand this clearly. Why? Because they're going to lead him out by his hands. The one that was leading this entourage to kill people is now going to be blind and have to be led by the hand from these men. He gets up, and the Bible says he opens his eyes, but he cannot see. Evidently, his eyes were closed tightly, overwhelmed at the Shekinah glory of Christ. That's my personal belief. Blinded him. No one can see God and live. He spared his life. You know what he could have done? He could have killed him. Clearly, he could have. But you know, I think saving him brought Christ more glory. Amen. So instead of just killing him and wiping him off the face of the earth, he redeems him. Rebounds to his glory. Amen. So listen to the imagery by which Luke gives us information. He gets up, opens his eyes, but he can't see. And again, evidently, Shekinah glory of God, God just blinded him. And the one he had persecuted and hated and desired to destroy. Do you think he all of a sudden started thinking, Oh, is this truly the Messiah? Is he the one promised in the scripture? Once he gets up, this is interesting, and attempts to open, open his eyes. He opens them, but he sees nothing. We'll talk about that probably next week. But that's the condition of every lost person in this world. Amen. They're physically able to see, but they're blind. They don't, they don't really see. Now, here's the, the great strength of all this terminology. Deuteronomy 28, 28 through 29 tells us that blindness is a covenant curse for rejecting our covenant-keeping God. So if you are an infidel, like Saul was in the Old Testament, you, you started off understanding the covenant of the Lord, but you vacated that. You broke the covenant commitment that God, Yahweh, gave to the people. Well, if that happened, one of the curses was blindness. Blindness was a covenant curse upon those who turned their back on the God of Israel and his covenants. Isaiah 59 verse 10 speaks of this. So Paul knows the word of God backwards and forwards. There's no doubt that he understood what happened to him that day was a covenant curse. He would see himself as a rebellious covenant breaker. If you reject, folks, Israel's Messiah, the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, then you've broken the covenant of God. If you reject Jesus Christ, the only mediator between God and man, there's no way possible you can be saved. Amen. 
You can't be a faithful son of Abraham, don't you think Paul thought about this, and reject God's covenant mediator, Christ Jesus the Lord. So, someone helps him up. He gets uh, a frightening reminder of covenant infidelity. Can you imagine the weight upon his life as he gets off the floor, gets off the dirt? He can't see anything. He's, he's blinded. He understands terminology of God repeating my name twice. He's thinking about the manifestation of the presence of God, which is incredible light at noonday. Just the Shekinah glory of God. He's thinking, I'm a covenant. Uh, I have broken the covenant of God. He's probably putting all this together in his mind. Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and the Father sent him to save sinners. He resurrected gloriously from the grave, and I'm the one that has been persecuting here. Here's a, him. Here's a man who was religious and zealous, but blind. You know, that's true with a lot of Baptists in churches sitting across America. They're, they're in church, perhaps. They think they're doing what's right, but there's never been a change in life. Saul was really the blind one because he rejected the Son of God. What Paul would experience physically, think about this, minute by minute, was a parable of a reminder of the deep darkness of his spiritual condition. I think that's why God did it to him for three days. He puts him in that stupor of spiritual blindness and darkness to help him see what he had done against the covenant-keeping God and the fact that he had been an infidel. Self-righteous Pharisee, Hebrew of Hebrews, is now led about by the hand because he is helpless and blind and walking in a state of darkness. He is also, he also doesn't eat or drink for three days. I think this is the case because he is absolutely overwhelmed with the condition of his life. Usually when you don't eat, especially if you're like me, something's going on. You're either sick or you're worried or, or you're fasting. Right? You could be fasting. But in Paul's case, I think his whole life had collapsed right before his eyes. Couldn't even bring himself to the normal sustenance of water for three days. Do you think his mind was turning over and over and over the reality, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting? Those three words. I am Jesus. Yahweh saves. I am Jesus. The prophetic scriptures have been fulfilled. And this was inescapable to Paul. It's a conclu conclusion that he's going to come to as he writes his 13 epistles. Right? He's going to write about that. He's going to write a quarter of the Bible. Amen. I rejected him, hated him, pursued him, and pursued all who followed him. But they're the ones that were open to see, and I'm the one that was blind. So... I think for three days, again, that spiritual death was sinking into his life. I am blinder than I could have ever imagined. What do we learn from this text of Scripture? Of course, we're going to get to verse 10 next week, and it's going to get even more exciting. But what do we learn for our application today? Write this down. First thing, salvation is by God's sovereign grace. We could add in the term to make it more of an adjective and say amazing. Right? Advertisal. We could do that, right? God's awesome, sovereign, amazing. We could just put all kind of adjectives in there, right? To explain the grace of God. On the day of his salvation, Paul was not seeking Christ. He was actually seeking to kill Christians. 
And God arrested him with free and sovereign grace. This was sudden. Jesus doesn't, doesn't even stop long enough to say, you want to say a sinner's prayer? He doesn't stop long enough to say, are you going to make a decision for me or what? He doesn't even stop long enough to do that. As the old song says, oh mighty love, arrest that man. And that's what happened. The mighty grace and love of God arrested Saul of Tarsus. God in his free and sovereign matchless grace came to Saul's soul without permission. Are y'all reading the same text I'm reading? There's no permission granted here. And God saved his soul. Free, sovereign grace. Sometimes the power and glory and fury of divine grace, when it comes, he doesn't knock on the door, folks. He kicks it in. Sometimes he may knock. Other times he just stomps the door down. And he's free to do that because he's God. He's free and he's sovereign. And if you're a Christian today, I want to urge you to think about something. Think about, if you're not, or let's go this route first. If you're not a Christian, and you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, I urge you to yield. Yield to the King today, right? Who willingly forgives sinners and saves those who come to Him by faith. If you, you will always look back on that day and think to yourself, well came to church that day and I had it in my mind I was going to trust Christ. No, you didn't. No, you didn't. Read the Bible. Think about this. You, you'll think, I, was, I always took that first step and I chose Jesus. I found Him. But in reality, you'll learn from Acts chapter 9 that it was God that finds you. Amen. Come on. The Bible says no one seeks after God. You can't take the first step. You can't because no one seeks God. Nobody. It has to be the Savior who initiates by grace your seeking of who He is. You're the prey. He's the hunter. That's the way salvation works. Yeah, do you get saved by grace through faith? Absolutely. But it's the grace of God that is extended to you before you ever even consider a thought of Jesus. Because the Bible says the natural man cannot discern the things of God. If you're natural, that means you're lost. And if you can't discern the things of God, that means you can't. There's no way for that to happen. Does this, when you listen to a song, I'm tempted to get Phil to come back up here and do that song one more time. That's why down deep in my soul, I begin to worship the King. As soon as you start hearing the terminology of grace and seeking and free, the, God, the fact that God takes hold of me, He didn't have to do that. Boy, don't you know... Uh, I, I would venture to say that Acts 16, when the Philippian jailer is saved, when Paul and Silas are singing hymns, don't you know they had to be singing Amazing Grace? And they start tapping that foot, and all of a sudden it turns into a, a divine earthquake by God, right? I don't know, but can you imagine how strong Paul would have been standing and singing God's grace saved a wretch like me? You know why? Because here's a man who knew full well that he didn't add anything to his salvation. He knew full well that it was God and God alone who arrested this man on the road to Damascus. And I'm going to tell you, folks, you're going to get to the end of your days and you're going to figure out that it wasn't you that first took the first step. It was God Almighty that took the first step toward you. I promise you, you'll see it one day in glory. 
you'll understand that it was sovereign grace that arrested your life. You may not have been a violent persecutor of the church or a blasphemer, but the same grace that stopped Saul on the road uh, to Damascus, Saul of Tarsus, dead in his tracks, turned him 180 degrees in a different direction. That's the same grace that woke you up when you were dead in your trespasses and sin and brought you to life in Jesus Christ. Salvation is by God's sovereign grace. Secondly, all conversions involve a life-changing encounter with Christ. Now, this, shouldn't this kind of be uh, a given? Like who's buried in Grant's tomb? Right? Shouldn't it be? I mean, if you encounter the risen Christ, you ought to change. Hello? Are y'all awake? Now, this is something that we struggle with in the United States of America. Because... Oh, how can I say this? We often live like we haven't encountered him and we claim to know him. Think about this for a moment. Conversion happens dramatically to some, but to others it happens quietly. Now think about it. We, we saw the Ethiopian eunuch reading the text of Scripture and Philip jumped up on the chariot, shared the word, trusted Christ as Lord. Kind of quiet. You got... This, that is nowhere close to being quiet, very dramatic. When you get to Acts 16, you have Lydia sitting at the riverbank. And what, the, what about, well, I can't wait to preach this. And the Bible says that God opened her heart. Amen. You'll never be saved unless God opens your heart. The Bible says that Lydia, God opened her heart. That's kind of quiet. Get to Acts 16 a little later, and you've got the Philippian jailer. And his conversion is pretty dramatic, right? earthquake and he says what must I do to be saved and he is born of God and Paul says and your household can be born of God too if they'll trust Jesus like you did right but what I'm pointing out to you is that God opened her heart some salvations quiet some are dramatic like Damascus Road experiences but here's the deal both individuals all the individuals in the book of Acts, when they encountered Jesus Christ, they were never the same. So that's the point I'm trying to get to you, church family. All conversions involve life-changing encounters with Jesus. When you come to know him as Lord, he's not becoming another God on your shelf. He becomes the God of your life, the Lord of your life. He's the only God that exists, right? And, and when you meet him, it's going to change your life. I love the old hymn we used to sing, I've been changed. I'm newborn now. My life has been rearranged. Y'all know this? What a difference he made when the Lord came and stayed in my heart. Oh, yes, I've been changed. Amen. You can't trust Christ and not be changed. If there's no tree, there'll be no fruit. Right? Folks, think about this. And by the way, don't be ashamed of it. That you belong to Jesus. We act like we're, we owe the world a, a favor by being quiet about it. No, folks. It's okay to get excited about Christ. Right? It is. It's okay to live after you've encountered him. Right? To live godly once you've encountered him. What can the world do to you? That's why Paul said for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. So salvation is by conversion. Salvation is by sovereign grace. 
when you, can, when you are converted, when you meet Christ face to face, you will change. Thirdly, all conversions involve surrender to Jesus. Now think about this. Uh, he was uh, a very prideful man, prestigious man, power, prestige, everything you could ever imagine. But now we see him humbly surrendering himself to the sovereign king. He humbles him with the truth. Uh, and the main truth he's going to humble Saul with is the resurrection. He thought Christ was a phony, but now he sees him in all of his power. And he's humbled before the Lord Almighty. He's blinded. He forces this proud guy to walk around with somebody leading him by the hand. Jesus further will send him to Damascus and say, wait for your instructions, even though you're blind. All of this helps realize, Paul realized something. He's not in charge. He had the letters, but he's not in charge. Amen. Right? Jesus Christ is the one in charge. Christ is the king. And Saul could only surrender. I want to remind you. I asked you when we started. How is it that you became his? Well, you became his because of sovereign grace. You became his because you encountered the Lord Jesus Christ. And when you encountered him, you were humbled before him. You bow low to the ground. As a matter of fact, even to trust Christ, you've got to be humbled. Because Man wants to believe that they can save themselves. That's why free and sovereign grace hits us the wrong way because we want to know, we want to think that we've done something to accomplish salvation. Right. We want to think that we've done something. It's like, uh, like that little hamster in that, on that wheel. He runs and runs and runs and runs and runs. He never goes anywhere, but he runs and runs and runs, right? We want to think that we are accomplishing our salvation. But folks, the Son of God came down from heaven because you couldn't accomplish your salvation. That you couldn't live the life. But He did live the life. And then finally, not only do you have to humble yourselves before Him, but God can save the worst of sinners. Isn't that great? That's what the passage is about. God can subdue an enemy by converting him. He could have killed him, but He converted him. But He saved him and got more glory. No matter who you are, what you've done, you're never outside the marvelous reach of the grace of our God. It doesn't matter what you've done, how bad you've been. You could have, young people, you could have trampled on everything your mom and dad ever taught you. Every single thing you've ever learned, you could have trampled it underfoot. Everything they've taught you. You could have turned away adults from everything you learned in Sunday school from your teacher who was faithful to teach you the word. But the grace of God can extend to the worst of sinners. Doesn't matter who you are. The vilest offender. You ever sung that song? Some of you look at me strange when I talk about hymns. The vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus a pardon receives. The vilest of sinners. So whether you're 10, this morning you think you're an incredible sinner. Nobody worse than you. Maybe you're 15 and you think, man, oh, I'm a heinous sinner. 25 and you're self-righteous because you've been sitting in church all your life and you think you got it all together. What you need to know is that we have a willing Savior who can save anywhere, anybody, anytime. You may be 85 in here, and you think there's no way God can save me. Look at my life. I've lived 85 years, and uh, I don't know Christ. Yes, Jesus Christ can save you. Repent and believe. Turn to Jesus only for salvation. He won't turn you away, no matter your sin. Anyone who says to the Lord God Almighty, I was wrong, in not the jail sorrow type of wrong, but contrition, broken heart before God. 
David said this, right? God loves a broken and contrite heart. Broken before God, you turn to Him, trust Him only for salvation. God can save you. There was no one more violent than Paul the persecutor. Saul the persecutor, right? Look what God did with him. And sometimes we think, well, we need to pray that God will save the good-for-nothing scum-of-the-earth sinners for His glory. Yeah, we should pray that. But we also ought to pray for the persecutors of the church, that God would save them. When's the last time you prayed for a Muslim terrorist, Islamic terrorist? Well, you know, folks, this is equal to that. There was not more of a terroristic threat than to be around Saul of Tarsus, if you're a believer. No question about it. Can we pray that God will save the militant Muslim? I want to say, God, do it so you'll get more glory. Go ahead and do it. Save them. Save them, right? In a flash, God can grab that person up, knock them on the ground, and change them forever. And he could even turn them into a flaming evangelist. Because that's what he did with Saul. During a... You ever heard that progression of preachers? That it was Mordecai Ham that was preaching when Billy Sunday came to faith in Christ. And it was Billy Sunday that was preaching when Billy Graham came to faith in Christ. You ever, have you ever read that? In, I mean, it's awesome how all that took place. But during a Texas revival meeting led by Mordecai Ham, a man in the congregation was so overcome by the grace of God that God would save him that he just had an outburst in the revival. He had killed four men, and he had never dreamed that God, God's grace could reach him. But the man was so touched as Mordecai Ham was preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ that in 1910, he sprung up on the back row and he said, Saved! 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 Jack Schofield was leading the music at that time of the revival and he was so moved by that joyful outburst that he used those words to write the popular text of a song we sing. He wrote it that afternoon. The inspiration came from an enthused, the enthused gratitude of a four-time murderer that God arrested with sovereign grace. Don't ever doubt the power of God's grace to save a sinner. And he wrote the song called, it's in your Baptist hymnal, you want to look it up, 469, it's called Saved, Saved. Listen to the first verse. I found a friend who is all to me. His love is ever true. I love to tell how he lifted me. Don't you love this? And what his grace can do for you. Sing it. Saved by his power divine. Saved to new life sublime. Life now is sweet and my joy is complete for I'm saved. Say it. Saved. Saved. You may be like that four-time murderer. You think you're outside of the reach of God's saving grace. Your testimony today can be saved. 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 Father, thank you for arresting Saul of Tarsus. God, there's hope for sinners like us when we read about Saul. God, how we identify with the fact that we feel wretched. We feel that there's no way possible that we can... Lord, I'm reminded of old Squire Parsons' song, He Came to Me. Where there was that gulf that separated me from you. 
that gulf was so vast, that crossing, there was no way I could ever afford that crossing. But as the old song says, you came to me when I was bound in chains of my sins. You came to me when I possessed no hope within. You picked me up and drew me gently to your side. God, that's how salvation works. We can't cross that gulf. It's too wide. But you paid the price on Calvary to bridge that gap so that you could redeem our hearts and save us. God, if there is someone under the sound of my voice that's lost, oh, what a day this would be for them to come to know you. Today is the day of salvation. May they turn and repent and trust you only. And when they trust you, Lord, you're going to change their life. They'll never be the same. Lord, speak to our hearts. And for Christians, Lord, God, help us to be bold, not mean, not arrogant, but humble servants of you. Lord, because you've saved us. Lord, you saved our souls. And help us to be willing to speak unashamedly of who you are. In Jesus' name we pray.